Hello, Bookstew viewers and listeners. Welcome to the 101st episode of Bookstew. I promise I'm not going to name every episode uh, for the rest of them on, but it is the one after the 100th. And I'm so excited to have in the studio with me, not on Skype, not on Zoom, author Rachel Barenbaum. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to meet you. And one of the reasons you're here today is because you live in Brookline. So you could just kind of tootle over instead of having to Zoom and Skype. And as you just mentioned, um, Andy, who is um, works in the publicity department for your publisher, gave you the choice of either coming into the studio or doing it by Zoom. And you seize the opportunity I to did. come into the studio because this is really, as you just told me, the kickoff to your book tour. There are going to be book tours again. Yes, yes. I mean, not quite on the scale as they used to be, but I'm so excited to be here in person with you and to be doing this again. Thank so the, you. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. So the book that we're going to be talking about mostly today is called Atomic Anna, which is, I don't know how to describe it. I'm going to say it combines like four elements in really that you wouldn't necessarily think would mesh together. One is science, one is time travel, one is family relationships, and then there's injustice in there too. So it sounds like a lot to put into one novel, and it really is. But, um, and I was saying to Rachel um, when we were just chatting now that I see science and um, literature as two different things because science people are math nerds and you know they're preoccupied with facts and literature people are all like you know in the meadow running through the meadow thinking of poetry and stuff. So tell me please how you came about uh, as a person who obviously loves both. <laughs> it's true, it's true, I do love both. Um, I think that really a lot of science uh, starts with ideas and in philosophy and I studied philosophy in college. Um, I, I am that philosophy nerd, if you will. <laughs> but you know, if you look back on Einstein's theories, they start as an idea, right? This dream, and then he translates them into um, equations so that other people can also understand them. But you can also put them into words. And so I think that that's really how I see the root of it. You can have the same idea, um, and then you can put that into either equations or into a story. And I put it into the story side, <laughs> right? Whereas so others go Einstein the other way. Einstein is, um, is almost like a, a side character in this book or Einstein's theories. Was there an intersection between Einstein and philosophy at all? Yes, yes. I mean, relativity really, um, and this idea that time is relative, right, all started with Einstein and his philosophical ideas, um, trying to figure out what is time. And so actually I go very deeply into this in my first book, A Bend in the Stars, um, and I look into what is time. And you think, well, um, this we actually talked about this in one of my very first philosophy classes. Well, it's an invented notion. There's no such thing as being somewhere at 1.30 on a you know, <laughs> Thursday afternoon if you're on the moon, if you are the moon, right? This is something we've all agreed on. And he started out working on machines to synchronize clocks so that we could have train schedules, right? And you know, you could agree what time a train would run from one station to another. Um, but if you take that a step forward, as he kept working on this idea, he came to the, he made this crazy statement that said, there's actually no difference between the past, present, and the future. Which really must, which everyone must have been like, eh, wrong. Right, well, so he says, us physicists understand this. 
right? Um, and for some people, it, it really kicks off this dig into equations and physics and ideas there. And then for other people, you know, people like me, we start thinking, well, if they're all happening at once, and Einstein said it, maybe time travel really could happen, right? Maybe that's real. Maybe we can jump from one to the other because they're all happening now. Time isn't an, a sequential arrow. So the uh, time travel was a very strong element in this book. And I have to say that sometimes I've read books where there's, this book has three narrators and it also has multiple, multiple, multiple time sequences. And sometimes when I've read books like that, I get very confused and I get aggravated. But in, uh, when you opened each new chapter, you actually put a time frame on top. Mm -hmm. So it was the character, the year, and you had one fixed date that you worked with and every chapter reflected that date. I thought that was so smart. It made it so much easier to read. Was that your idea Thank to do you. that? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. That took a lot of work. Um, it actually started out, so it says right, right from the beginning, you know, it's X number of days until Molly dies on Mount Aragoth. Um, and in the beginning, I had had it calcula you know, down, calculated to uh, years, months, days, hours, right? And my early readers were saying, this is just too confusing. You know, simplify, simplify, simplify. And then as I got down you know, to just saying two years, right? One year, you know, 15 days, whatever the time was then, it got much simpler. I saw that my readers were finally following. So it was a trial and error process, but I always knew that it was that countdown. Yeah, that was, I thought that was really very effective. So the main characters in the book are a grandma, a mom, and a daughter. And each of them yeah. were so, each of them could have had their own novel. They were so, such remarkable women. Um, each of them kind of quarreling with each other. Each of them having difficulty with um, the, me the men in their lives, with, um, with each other with what they should do with themselves, with their loves and passions, one for art, one for math, one for science. Um, how, where do these characters come from? Or who came, which character came to you first? So we've got Anna, who's the grandma. We've got Molly, who's the mom, and Raisa, who's the, the grandchild or the daughter. Yeah, yeah, so the three of them, the book is really about the three of them uh, coming together and working together to build a time machine to stop Chernobyl and to save their family. Um, and which one did I start with? Um, I actually started with Xenia, who is a very small character in the book, who is Anna's mother, right, actually. Right. Um, and you don't see her till the very end. And the very last scene in the book is actually the very first one that I wrote. And really? Yes, yes. Talk about writing. I, ha I have uh, spoken to people in book clubs who when they read a mystery, they go to the end and just so they'll know who did the murder and they read from the front. I'm like, this is really weird. Why would you do that? So is, it, is that what you did with your other book, A Bend in the Stars? Did you kind of start with the end in your head? No, I mean, in my head, but I didn't actually write it. In this instance, I actually wrote it. And the more I dug into um, Anna, the more I realized that this was the book that I wanted to write. But I didn't just want to write about her because no family is a singular person or no person is singular without their family. Um, and I realized that her story, you know, literally bled right into her daughter, Molly, um, her love for Yulia, who adopts Molly and takes her to America, and then her granddaughter. 
and they all sort of evolved and came together because I couldn't tell one without the other. Uh, and there was also, of course, a very strong theme of immigration in yes. here. So between immigration, Chernobyl, I mean, it's almost strange and eerie how this book is coming out with everything going on in Ukraine and with Chernobyl once again entering the news in a very scary way and the other plants. How did, when, as Ukraine was developing, did you, did you think about this at all? Yeah, of course. I mean, so um, uh, Bend in the Stars is also written in Russia. Um, you know, before it was the Soviet Union, that area of the world is where my family came from. And I grew up with great aunts who uh, would call me over and, you know, they would, they would tell me to come close, come close. And they would say, Rachel, do you know where the passports are? And do you have your emergency money ready? Oh. And they would say, you know, we ran, we had to run, and we feel safe now. We're Jews living in America, but we might not always be safe, right? You have to be ready. And I was the oldest, it was my job. So, you know, even though my life has been safe in America, I've always had them in the back of my head. And, uh, you know, as the war in Ukraine has broken out, um, my dad, his sister, right, I'm talking to them and they're all saying, it's just like our aunt said, right? You, you know, it's not always going to be safe and you have to be ready. So this is something, I guess, that has been in my family conscious, in my consciousness, my entire life. And uh, so although I'm not as surprised maybe as some, I'm very saddened and it is, you know, it is very sad to see this happening where the book is also set, but not really a coincidence in terms of my family background. So did you have to do a lot of, since Chernobyl is a, a real, almost a character in the book, did you have to do a lot of research on Chernobyl in order to, because Anna is, I don't want to reveal too much, but Anna is instrumental in the development of the Chernobyl plant. Yeah, yeah, so um, I love that you're trying to hold some of the book back, and I'm probably <laughs> the big mouth who talks too much, but I mean, we learned very early on that Anna is the chief engineer and the one who designed the plant. Um, and so she is right there when it melts down. And I think I start the book there because the moment that Chernobyl melted down was a huge moment in my childhood. Um, I remember it very well. I was only nine years old, but that was the moment that I realized an accident wasn't just, you know, skinning your knee or poking your eye out or hurting my brother or sister, right? An accident on the scale of a grown-up accident would kill thousands, maybe millions, and it was horrific. And so that had always been in my head the entire time I was growing up. I was thinking the scale of the world, right? That is the moment in my childhood that I realized the scale of the world, the fear of what can really happen with progress and science. Um, so I've been tracking it for a long time. And then at the 30th anniversary um, around 2016, lots of photos started coming out of Chernobyl now and Pripyat, which is the closed city next to Chernobyl where the workers lived. And I saw this picture of a pool that, you know, it had bricks crumbling. It was, it looked, you know, like a ghost pool. And yet I could hear children laughing. You know, I could imagine the people who were swimming in there who wanted to be Olympians. Um, the old ladies swimming, like my great aunts, right, going back and forth. And there's the huge timer clock right on the wall. Then, you know, if you're doing laps, you um, might notice because you have to go on the 30 or every five seconds, a swimmer go, right? One of those huge clocks, it stopped. And I just thought, it's a ghost town. I have to write about this. So was that, when you said I had to write about this, was that your first thought about this book? So A Bend in the Stars, your first novel, 
was very, very successful, dealt with time travel like this one does. When did you start thinking about a second novel? Well, so when Bend in the Stars was being edited, you have the funny thing about writing is you have this, you know, hurry, 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 get your draft in. And then a year. Right, and then you have three months until your editor is going to send you something back. And so that's when I really started writing these other characters. And, uh, you know, these ideas started rolling through my head of what I had to write about. So um, I wanted to bring up, as I was researching you, I found some uh, similarities that we have between us. Um, I used to live in Brookline, you live in Brookline. We're both Jewish. And you also have uh, a podcast called Debut Spotlight. Yes. You're only up to episode 83 though. I'm up to episode 101, so I'm a little ahead of you there. Amazing. So how did, uh, how did that happen? Because I'm trying to imagine talking to authors and writing a book at the same time and not like having them bleed into each other. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't really have that problem. What I, what I get from talking to other authors is an energy and an excitement about writing. And so I, I'm never worried about ideas blending. I just sort of like to suck that energy from them, right, and learn from them. How do you write? What, you know, how do you get published? What do you do? And when um, the pandemic started and everything was shutting down and I couldn't go to book launches anymore, I wasn't seeing authors, I was just sitting there and I thought, I, I need to see, I need that energy. I need to talk to new authors. And so I started um, writing to, you know, publicists and um, publishers and saying, could I have some copies of books to take a look and see if I could, you know, start interviewing your authors. And then it rolled together and I hooked up with Jenna Blum um, and Caroline Levitt at Mighty Blaze and uh, I started Debut Spotlight. So it was great. So had, had you had experience at anything like that, interviewing people, and uh, were you immediately comfortable uh, doing it? It's not, a, I mean, jumping into a podcast after never having done anything like that, did you do any acting or anything like that? No, I think I just like to talk. <laughs> and so, and <laughs> well, I, but you have to be able to listen too, you yeah. know, especially when you're the one doing the interview. Yeah, I mean, I really love books, and I really love authors and stories and ideas, and so it's very natural for me to sit down and talk to somebody about their book. You know, just like we're having this amazing conversation. But I'm not a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Though I also saw another similarity we have is that we both write book reviews. Yes. I write one every week for the local newspaper. And I also uh, maintain my book inventory on librarything.com so that I don't read the same book twice. Do you, which do you like better, doing the podcast or writing reviews? Um, I mean, they're so different. So I usually end up doing author interviews for the LA Review of Books. That, those I love to do very, very much. Um, and, uh, but you know, there's a lot of editing and you go back a lot. And there's something about the spontaneity of a podcast and catching someone in, an, in a remark that they might beg you to delete. <laughs> right? Oh, have you really had interview. that happen? For sure. You know, people say, oh, did I just say that? You know, Ooh. so, yeah. But that doesn't happen in podcasts because you won't go back, you know, I don't go back and edit them. Oh, because they're live. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, so there's a different energy to them. So I, I like them both equally. So do you warn them ahead of time that, you know, this is live, this is it? Yeah, you know, yeah. Has anyone ever given you any any difficulty about that? No, happening? no. I mean, they know it's live. And I think they're also excited. You know, authors are so excited when someone reads our book. <laughs> I, I guess, to me, I'm so excited that I get to read the book and talk to the author that the author's excitement, honestly, I'm not like, it never occurs to me. Like, I'm just thinking, oh, the author is like, 
okay, you know, I got to do this interview. Yeah, I got to do this interview. And I'm all excited, and I'm figuring the authors, I mean, you're not James Patterson who has to, who has to write a book every week and <laughs> do a thousand media <laughs> Are interviews. you kidding me? It's, it's such a pleasure and an honor to have readers, right? You, I, mean, I spent three years writing this book in the dark, right? And then to, to come out and have people interested enough to talk about it and sit down with me, it's just, it's an amazing honor. So who do you imagine is your audience for the book? Because it, it really, there are so many categories that you can check off here. If you, do you ever think about, um, and especially as, since this is your, will be your second successful novel, like who, do, I don't assume you're writing it for a relative or a friend or anything, but who do you expect your audience to be for Atomic Anna? Um, I think that people who are interested in um, family stories, right, and time travel for sure, but also morality. Um, one of the big questions that goes throughout the book is just because we can doesn't mean we should. Right? So just because we can build this weapon, the worst ever conceived, a time machine, should we build it? Who gives us the right to use it? So I'm really hoping that that will interest people. Um, one thing that has come out of the book is uh, the middle generation, Molly, is a comic book artist. And I did a lot of reading of comics when I was younger, a lot of research into Trina Robbins and uh, you know, sort of older school comics from the 70s as I wrote it. And um, that comic book audience is actually sort of bubbling up underneath this book. It's really exciting. And I have some comic book um, artists that I've been in touch with um, through the Visible Women Project from Kelly Sue DeConnick and some others. Um, and. Uh, it's been amazing because I actually have people drawing now my characters and the comic book that I describe in the book. So they're going to come out soon. I'm going to be putting them up on social media and publishing them. And it's that, amazing. I, I was going to mention that as yet another commonality between us because I love Trina Robbins. You I, do? I, oh. I mean, I'm one of those old school 70s readers of the East Village Other, and I love. Oh. So you Love knew it comics. because it's a book. As soon as I, oh. as soon as I came across her name, I'm like, oh my God, Trina Robbins! I haven't thought of her in such a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a collection of comics, comics from back in the day, and I think one of them is hers. There were, the idea of feminist comic comics was so dramatic and seemed so important at the time, and now it's shifted from comics more to graphic novels, which I, which I also love, but. Um, she's one of the pioneers. I was yeah. so excited oh. when you had her name. I'm so in thrilled. There. I actually great. got to send her an early copy of the book. No way. Yes, oh yes. And she wrote back to me and she said she loved it. She said it was so good and it was exciting to see her name back in there. And I, it was. I don't One even want to think days. about how old she is. Does she still like draw comics and stuff? I think so. I mean, she's you know she's definitely still speaking out and you know trying to get more women involved and women in comics published. So oh, maybe I'll have to reach out to her publicist and see. <laughs> yeah, see I mean, she's I a total inspiration. Own. And oh, I'm so glad you knew her as you oh, read the book. I was so excited. So um, I also wanted to. I'm going to uh, bring up a couple of quotes that re that. Um, I thought would kick off some good um, some good conversation. This one is her parents read Life magazine as a set of instructions on what Americans were supposed to think and do. That must have been. I think that was true for everybody, but for immigrants, it must have been like a Bible. And I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Huh. 
Huh. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I, I mean, I definitely had family members also who would read it and say, you know, no, we have to have this brand of soda, <laughs> right? And this television. And you see the book opens and they're actually using, you know, an issue of life to build a bomb shelter in their basement. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. To, you know, sadly, right again, the parallel to what's happening in other parts of the world, they're saying we could have, you know, nuclear weapons raining down on us in Philadelphia and we need to be safe. And Life magazine says this is how we do it. And then, and you know, now it. when you think about it, you know, that era in duck and cover, yep. which was my era where you go hide under the desk and put your arms over your head because that's really going to save you. Um, that went from, that kind of went quiet and people made fun of people um, with bomb shelters. And I remember there was a Rod Serling story, I don't know if it ever, I think it was on Twilight Zone, of the one family on the block who built a bomb shelter and then there's actually a nuclear accident and all the neighbors who had been making fun of the father ah. try to get into the bomb shelter, which they, the father has closed off so that no radiation gets in. It was a great ironic wow. story. So wow. now we've got preppers. Yep. You know, and, yeah. but, but I don't know if preppers are building bomb shelters. I think they're more like mobile, like they're packing their cars with these specific go bags, you know, which may have come from people in San Francisco who are supposed to have a go bag ready in case there's an earthquake. Right. But I mean, it's like if there, if you ever needed proof that what goes around comes around, this is it again. Yeah. But you know, when you walk around, sometimes you see those old signs for yep. fallout shelter. But not very often anymore. They yeah. used to be on like every school. Yeah. And, I yeah. point them out sometimes to my kids, right? Because for them, it's ancient history. What's that still doing there? And we don't even notice them, but they're still there. Yeah. Well, and you know, for the people of Mariupol, it was a good thing they're there. And for people in Ukraine, it's a good thing they're there. Though, of course, in a way, I think it's given the Russians a chance to say, oh, here's a target, Let's, mm. which is just crazy, but okay. Um, this I really liked. You said, science was a means of communication. Experiments were a language. Just like the Life Magazine comment, I've never, I've never thought of that. How, can you explain that a little bit? How did that that come? Have you been? Is that a thought you've had for a long time and an understanding you've had for a long time? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you know, back to what we were saying in the very beginning, different people might have a same the same idea, but how do you express it, right? So um, I think I also talk about how for Molly, right? So we all see this desk, right? And how are we going to describe it? Well, we could give it a set of equations. Right, or we could give it a location, <laughs> coordinates. Um, if you're an artist, you could see the contrast of light and dark. Um, you could define the light waves coming at it. Right, you could come for well, what is a desk? If you're a philosopher, right? <laughs> what does it mean to be in this room? I mean, there's so many ways of thinking about this desk, and I just love thinking about all the different ways that people's heads work. I'm so interested in that, and um, so that's what I really wanted to get at in the book. I just, I think so that when you say it that way, it wouldn't only be science, it would be, you could say, um, literature was a means of communication, short stories were a language or something like that. So that, that, uh, that fits really well. Um, so the last quote that I, that I love, that kind of kicks off really the whole book and could be probably in every book is, everything in our family is complicated. <laughs> yes. This happens to be a more complicated family than most, so much because of immigration. But also you have 
uh, Anna, who is a scientist, you have Molly, who's an artist, and you have Raisa, who is a mathematician. And um, to have a family with such outstanding women in it, and um, you know, Raisa, you see her from when she was a little kid. Um, Molly had some problems with uh, a husband and drugs and addiction and um, and Anna was just, you know, Anna felt responsible personally for Chernobyl. So you've got, um, talk about a complicated family. <laughs> the men in the family are, I'm not going to say peripheral because they all are important characters, but we don't, none of them speak. So nothing is from their perspective. It's only from the women's perspective. Was that deliberate? You, I mean, I know you're not gonna usually have six perspectives, but. <laughs> no, absolutely deliberate. I mean, I love to read books about strong women and women you know, turning stereotypes up on their heads. And um, there are lots of books, I think, where you could have you know, three men as the main characters who are brilliant well, in a family. There's lots of books with yes. three men as the main Exactly, characters. and so I wanna read about the women, so that's what I write about. And um, I really want people to recognize also that women can be these brilliant scientists and mathematicians and complicated, and that everybody has a messy life somehow, right? There, we all have secrets. But you know, but the dealing with the messiness in this book is just so redemptive. I mean, it shows that there is life beyond even what you think is the most. There is a good life beyond what you think could be the most horrible messes in the entire world. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, one person that I spoke to a lot um, in in researching this book was a woman who had come through um, addiction herself, and. I, she really made me realize that she had hit this point, this, this bottom that I couldn't even imagine. And yet I know her as someone who has come up and you know, has an amazing career, a life, right? A house, a husband, this super life it looks like, all shiny and sparkly. But when you dig underneath, and she opened up to me and told me about hitting that bottom, I thought that is so amazing and remarkable. And that I wanted to capture that because it's so interesting the strength that it takes to pull up from out of that. And, and I really wanted to share that and explore that in the book. I think you did a fantastic job with it, especially since you didn't particularly demonize Victor, who was really the source of the drug addiction. Molly seemed to be the type of person who might be susceptible to falling into that anyway. You know, in her in between, you know, she's brought to the United States by people who aren't her parents, her mother, she has no contact with her mother. All that trauma <clears throat> makes for an understandable propensity towards addiction, but I thought you handled it really well. You didn't sugarcoat it, but you didn't, you made it something that seemed very real, and especially Molly's way of um, preventing herself from falling back in, just reminding herself that it was just another hour she had to get through. It was another two hours she had to get through. I thought that was very, very effective. So anyone you spoke to um, who helped you with this, uh, my compliments to them. I think, I think you and they did a great job. Thank you. It was very hard to write those sections. So I'm afraid our time is up, but um, oh, I have- Already. I know, it's only a half hour, but I have to tell you, how much I loved this book, and it launches on April, around April 1st? April 5th. April 5th. So um, please, Bookstu viewers, listeners, 
Um, the book will be out very soon, Atomic An Anna by Rachel Berenbaum. Um, please get this book. There are so many levels to it, and it's hard for me to think of anyone who wouldn't really think it was a great read and very thought-provoking, but uh, wonderful at the same time. So, Rachel, thank you so much for coming all the way out from Brookline. <laughs> I just wish I had asked you to bring some hamantaschen for Purim, which is a Jewish holiday, and I know there's some good bakeries in Brookline. We don't have any here, but maybe next <laughs> time for the next book. Eileen, thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. Oh, thanks again. So, books to viewers and listeners, I'm glad you were able to join me and join Rachel, and please watch for her book. Have a good night.